Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Grace, good to have you on the show. Hi, Jeremy. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. What honor? We've been friends for so long now. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's an honor for you to be on my show. I look at you as the fairy godmother of Singapore's technology innovation scene. And I don't think you get enough credit, honestly, from the early days. So I'm happy to share a little bit history, the unofficial history of Singapore's startup and entrepreneurship scene, but also go into a little bit about what the challenges we see still for Singapore and founders today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds good. So, Grace, for those who don't know you yet, could you share a little bit about who you are and your professional journey? Well, I'm Grace Sai, and I am right now the founder and CEO of Revel Innovation. We are an innovation firm that helps government and large corporates innovate by working with startup and social good communities around the world. This is a spin-out out of Foundate, which was a large co-working platform for innovators. I'm also a mom to a 22-month-old girl called Leia. That itself is a second startup. Yeah, that's about it for, for now. Well, you've done a little bit more than that, right? You've <laughs> been awesome, a consultant, you're an Oxford MBA, you've been a founder, you led Impact Hub Singapore, you've been an advisor for Magic, the Malaysian Global Innovation Creativity Center. Mm. You've been on advisory board for Ben and Jerry's. You've been EIR at INSEAD. You know, so I'm just fun. like, there's a long list, right? So Grace, you've got to give us a That's little bit so more. Fun. Like, maybe, okay, how about we go back to the beginning? Yeah. When did you start becoming an entrepreneur? Okay. I think we might not know it, but I always feel like our true life calling already sort of revealed and manifested itself when we are like below five years old. I am the fifth child of my dad and the first child of my mom. Actually, that itself has a lot to unpack because there's something called the birth order theory that will affect largely your outlook in life, your, your perspective of the world, your, your psychological development. Anyway, so long story short, I, I come from a big family. We are a middle-income family and we were given a lot of freedom just because our parents didn't have enough bandwidth to take care of six kids. So we would do a lot of fun things that at the back of it are unsurprising. We would, for example, every year and during the Christmas season, we would turn the house into a theme park and each child will be in charge of one station, which is one room. And you can convert it to whatever you want without capital. And you would sell real tickets, you know, like for 50 cents to to your neighbors to come. I would always take the bathroom because our bathroom has a window um, up top and I would fill it with water so that it becomes a tank. A swimming pool and people can pay 50 cents to jump into it. And I would always win this kind of like family entrepreneurial project because it's fun creating something out of nothing. And then I also remember I love being a love doctor. I would create like what you're doing, not as glam, but I would create a fake radio station when I was maybe nine years old, line up all my soft toys, my Peter Rabbit, you know, my Monchi cheese, and I would make them tell me their love problems. 
and I would solve them hypothetically. And then I, I would do that every day after school for months until one day my dad found out about my undergrad activity and he was like, what the, what, sorry, what are you doing? And like, you know, you can't, you can't be this when you grow up because no one will pay you. And I was like, everyone will have love and love problems. And there are no doctors for that right now, as far as I know. And there are no schools for that. And not like there are schools now for education, literacy, cooking, driving, whatever else. And love is such the most important thing. So I think that time I had already developed thinking in first principles theory, right? You know, go back to the basics, regardless of what people say. And I found through my years as well as through help supporting other entrepreneurs, very often it's the closest people around you that are the naysayers because it's out of protective instinct, right? So my dad for the longest time had sort of tried to suppress my (laughs) entrepreneurialism, but I would always argue my way out like using the first principles theory until now. I think it's super useful. Anyways, I went to MGS in Ipoh, actually. Um, I, I was in a, in, in, a, in a top class where it's filled with daughters of high court judges and lawyers and doctors. And I saw them filling up this form called the ASEAN Scholarship Form to study in Singapore for a junior college. And I was like, I've never heard of it. None of my siblings actually went overseas to study because we didn't come from a very wealthy family. You know, both my parents were educators and we would just make ends meet in many ways. And so I was like, okay, I just typed it on FOMO, right? Already at that time, like, I also filled up that form. So we had to like take IQ tests, take English tests, math tests. Don't, don't forget in Malaysia at that time, our, our whole syllabus except for English was taught in Malay. Like I learned math in Malay. I learned chemistry and physics and history in Malay. It was ridiculous. And it was really a long shot, but yeah, I remember the, the eve of uh, Christmas of uh, the year 2000, a letter came and it said that I was chosen to be an ASEAN scholar. And I kind of hid the letter away from my parents because I didn't want to go. I wanted to, you know, to follow uh, the tracks of my sisters. They, they had a lot of fun in pre-U. They were like directors of school plays. They were like conductors of their school choirs and they had boyfriends. And so I just wanted to like follow that. But then my elder brother found the letter and he kind of like (laughs) burst my bubble secret. So yeah, in like five days, I had to pack my bag. We took a bus. We couldn't even afford a flight ticket. You know, my dad and I took a bus to to Singapore. So so drama, right? And then, you know, came to a hostel where other scholars started arriving. It's like classic Mallory Towers, any Blackton book, you know. And then, yeah, I spent two years um, at St. Andrews Junior College as a scholar. And I remember all of us were failing everything in the first three months because of the switch in English, of languages. But I survived. Um, not every of my friends survived. Like if you get bad grades um, a few times, you get sent home. So it was quite, it was quite nasty to go through as a 17-year-old. But that was my introduction to Singapore, Singapore's education system. And then I, I went to uni, wasn't so great here in Singapore. I shan't name <laughs> uh, which one, but I think it's gotten better. And then one thing led to another, you know, I had to um, work to get pocket money, right? I remember manning a booth for an alumni event or something. And uh, 
a professor of marketing, he was writing a book with Philip Kotler, who is like the world's marketing guru. They're writing textbooks and case studies that were localized to Asia. And they were looking for a case writer. And someone told him that I could speak a few languages. I think at that time it was like five or six languages. And then he, he was like, do you want to work on a side gig? I'll pay you $3,000 and you would, you would pump uh, a case study every three days, you know, based on research. And these are all the accounts, you know, all the scholarly journal databases. And I'm like, $3,000, that's a lot of money <laughs> at that time. You know, I'm, I don't think I've ever seen that much. Anyway, so I said yes. And yeah, I, I helped write the textbook that my, uh, that my friends were using, you know, and that was also my first uh, venture into really studying through data and through um, a lot of research how successful companies become successful. And I started recognizing patterns, right? And so that's when I thought, okay, I, I like to be a consultant, but I, I don't think I want to um, be in Singapore because I felt that Singapore at that time was very stifling. You know, it, it had a very unidimensional view of what success was. Like you have to be a trader, banker, lawyer, doctor, something like that, right? And, and not the more entrepreneurial kind. So I agreed to go to work in Jakarta with the other co-author of the book. Um, and I, I was in Jakarta for three years at the end, you know. The first year I was a, a consultant. And then my sister, who runs a family business, we financed the construction of telco towers yeah, all over a few countries. It got bought by a public company and then they wanted to expand to Indonesia and I was there. So my sister was like, okay, you have enough connections. You kind of speak the language. Can you set up our office there? And then I agreed and I worked for her basically for a year. And then what happened was, and this is really a pivotal point. I, and I think a lot of young people go through this moment as well, perhaps without realizing, but I have what psychiatrists would call a quarter life crisis. I'm 24 and I was seriously depressed because I feel like, what, what am I doing with my life? And I just feel very deeply and very passionately that my life on this earth is meant to do something unique. It's meant to live on a purpose that is beyond making money and that is to be used for the betterment of others. It was just a voice. It was just a hunch, you know, and I wasn't a charitable person per se, but I embraced it. I actually dreamt that I started a building, a library with 342 bedrooms as well, as well as a library for like homeless children. It was so strange. Like it was very vivid. Anyways, I woke up, I drew it out. I still have the drawing and I started contacting people, you know, because as a consultant, you make uh, a lot of friends, right? And, you know, in three weeks, I had 4,000 books in my apartment. I'm like, I haven't even prepared warehousing <laughs> facilities. You know, we were indexing books. We were like, we, we set up a team. And then slowly but surely, um, people started giving us as well contacts of village parties. They call it like village mayors who would welcome a library, you know, in, in their villages. And this marked the, the next years of my life where every minute I have, every weekend, because I was still working for my sister, I had, we would go to a village very like deep inside a jungle, eight hours from, from an airport. And we would camp there and we would set up libraries with at least 700 new books. We would also localize the books to the economic profile of, of, the, of the region. 
So for example, if I'm in a palm oil plantation, there'll be a lot of books on agriculture, right? And, and things like that. And I remember there was even a library in a mountain between Jakarta and Bandung, where the social uh, economic problem was that a lot of the moms were sort of shipped away to the Middle East to become wives wow. without them knowing. So they, yeah, so they were like an illiterate uh, population there because they were made to sign contracts without knowing what they're signing. So we, we really tried to adapt and we, at the end of it, we brought over 30 libraries to 30,000 children, you know, and, and new school bags and new stationery. And, and that was my first foray into like doing something that has direct impact and it's so rewarding, even though it's not by, by the normal sense financially rewarding, but that was amazing. So one thing led to another. I got a full scholarship to do my MBA at Oxford, thanks to Jeff Go. Thanks, Jeff. So he's the uh, the co-founder or first president of eBay. And when eBay saw, I think he made like 5.2 billion or something. And, you know, poor people got problems. Rich people also got problems because it was like, what do I do with all this money? So he actually went interviewing the smartest people he knew for two years um, to, to, to figure out how to spend his money. Again, he's very... He's very smart, you know, Stanford grad, um, but he always wanted to uh, use capital for good as well. So at the end, he used one billion of that to set up the Skoll Foundation, which produces the Skoll Forum, which is like the World Economic Forum, but for social entrepreneurs, the NGO leaders. So then a portion of it, he went to fund uh, the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship in Oxford's business school, in Syed Business School. So I was the only scholar ever from, from this part of the world, I think, till now. Yeah, the time in Oxford was life-changing, right? Like, I'm sure HBS did the same for you. For us, it was one year. It's like <laughs> double-packed. <laughs> yeah. we, we hopefully achieve the same employment rates and results and all that, but in half the time, right? And that's when we started to cross our paths together was I first met you because you were looking to build the Impact Hub Singapore, right? Which yeah. was an amazing thing, amazing moment. And I remember, I think our conversation was very much like, hey, do you want to be part of this co-working space, this community? We're going to be impact-focused. It's going to be something magical. And I remember you were very enthusiastic at that time mm-hmm. uh, from that conversation. And I remember that I had been working out of Starbucks for, you know, <laughs> you know a couple of months. And after that, I was working out of the pantry of uh, Kelvin Chu from Eden Strategy mm-hmm. Institute. Yeah. When you came to me, I was like, oh, for sure, I'll definitely want to join. And I somehow ended up becoming a founding member. So I was like, what, the first 10 members to join? Uh, you started Conjunct already, right? At that time, 2012. Yeah, I was running Conjunct at that time. Mm. And I remember us moving into the space together. So that was an interesting time. Yep. Tell us more about founding, you know, at a time it was called Impact Hub Singapore. Tell us how you went about founding it. Yeah, so it's really, you know, part of the Oxford story, right? Because there I was exposed to literally kings, queens, the Malalas and Desmond Tutus of the world. And I feel like, oh my goodness, you know, these are not unachievable versions of myself. These are literally people who is having dinner with me, who have dedicated their lives to change the world in a way that they, they know how. So when I, when I, I spent um, a few months in Silicon Valley and working for Jeff's foundation, 
a friend was telling me, hey, there's this new concept called The Hub um, down in on Market Street in San Francisco. And I think it's so you, you should check it out. So I stepped into that building. It was 20,000 square feet in the old San Francisco Chronicle factory. It was amazing. The energy, you, it's filled with people who are using business and technology to change the world. And I contacted them and I found out that there was no hub in Asia. So that's when I came back. I worked for a couple of months to line my pockets a little bit. And then I spent nine months basically having 400 coffee chats. You were one of them possibly, right? And just to find out if something like that was needed. I didn't want to do something that people didn't want. So I really have 400 coffee chats and and um, I had money enough for seven months of not earning salary. And then, you know, it's always like that, right? It always takes longer than you think. So at seven months, I had nothing yet but those coffee chats. I had no building, no team, no no investor, nothing. And I was like, at that time, do I want to stop? Do I want to continue? And by that time, I was super convinced that Singapore needed a place and a community where the smartest people come together and, and mingle and share and build shit together. And I sort of continued, but I had no more money. I literally have like enough to buy a few meals left. So I was like, how do I make money? And I, I, told, I, I told my mom to make 30 fruit cakes and I sold it for $100 each. So it lasted me for two more months and there everything happened, right? It's that path of momentum where things are slow and then like, boom, everything fell into place. So yeah, we had the rate building in partnership with the National Youth Council. And, you know, we opened our doors to the 50 founding members. And then very quickly, we became 400 members in two years or something. And then we were packed. It was only a 4,000 square feet space. You know, there were great companies that came out of the hub because, it was a great place, number one, also number two, because there were nowhere else to go, right, Jeremy? Uh, but honestly, it was it was a great place. You had Chris at the cafe, right, always greeting people. Good morning, darling, every morning. And then do you remember, like, Golden Gate Ventures were there. Grain didn't have money to pay me. And look at Grain now, I think it's a Series B, C company now. They even bribed the security guard to let them stay and shower and sleep over. I didn't know until Song told me last year that they did that. They were so poor. <laughs> so yeah, it was in a way that, that building in my dream, you know, for homeless people, <laughs> right? Uh, homeless, homeless entrepreneurs who needed a, a home, basically. Yeah, and it was great. Those were magical years. Yeah, so it was interesting, right? Because in retrospect, so many great companies cared them out of that space, right? So we talked about it, like obviously Jungle Ventures, Golden Gate Ventures, Tech in Asia, Glintz, mm. Grain, Grain, Conjunct Consulting. Mm. There's actually a, a lot really of other impact ventures too. A lot of impact ventures as well. Yeah. Uh, so Jackie Hawking and mm. uh, a whole bunch of other different folks, right? That were just uh, there. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I think it was part of it, and I didn't realize how special it was. I mean, I was also there uh, working a lot and having an awesome time actually there. Really enough, and I think. It's interesting because I remember at a time, like none of us really called ourselves founders because it was still a very weird term at that time, yeah. right? So it was still looked down upon. Yeah, exactly. If you call yourself a founder, everyone was just like, oh, this is a shady company, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we were calling ourselves like CEO or president, you know, of our mm-hmm. one man, two man, three man teams, uh, just to feel like, you know, we had standing. So when you look at a time, obviously, when we were at that National Youth Council and with the help of obviously the government sponsorships and 
and everything. What do you think made that community special back then? I think we were all marginalized in a way, you know, by at that time, what was still the primary definition of success. We were fighting so hard to educate people through the media, educate our parents that being an entrepreneur is the future or could be one viable career path where you don't need to starve and and die of hunger or something. And we were fighting against the norm. And that unites people. Look, I really believe that the greatest movements in our history as humanity, whether it's the women emancipation movement or the LGBT movement, environmental, it all first started with small groups of passionate people in spaces like that, in basements, in dodgy buildings and communal spaces like that. And they made their voices heard and they created a new reality of what could be. And I think that united us because at that time, it wasn't, you know, it started up in Singapore was not celebrated like it is today, right? In fact, at that time, I remember the government had or attempted but failed a few times. Do you remember? Like 2009 to 2012, there were a couple of attempts. And, and therefore, I think what we all wanted to do was we are the people that you're making the policies for, right? We have a voice. We are physically proximate. We stand for something, come and listen to us, right? That's why at the hub, we were like having 20, 30 events a month. Almost every night there was something. For four years, it was like that. That's why my team and I were all burned out, right? Because there was so much going on that was just beyond building a company, you know? And it was so exciting. We knew we were at the nexus of change per se, right? And and for me, I was living in Tiong Bahru at that time. And I remember there were like kids who would set up laminate stands and sell laminates for like one, two bucks, right? For pocket money. And you know what? I, I literally cried when I, when I saw that. There were adults, right? Locals who would complain to the NEA because these children did not have the proper license to sell drinks. I'm like, that was so fundamental to me because you are muting the creativity of children at that age. How can you ask them to be entrepreneurial and creative when they grow up, when the economy needs them? You know, so when you mute people's creativity like that, you mute everything else as well. So that I upset me a lot. And I knew that if we want to really create a path for entrepreneurs to be celebrated and not misunderstood, we need to change it systemically by just doing things and being successful. Wow, I never saw it that way, right? You know, because I think for me at the FDA, I was a consumer at the time. I was coming back in, coming back from the States and just, you know, I remember walking into that new office space you know, on day one and I was like, oh, you know, Grace is under control, right? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you think it was like crazy and burned. And I was like, this is great. I told all my friends about it. I walked in on day one mm. and I was like, oh, this is awesome. It's way better than Starbucks and, uh, you know, kitchen tables. And I was very happy as a consumer, obviously, of the space. It's interesting because you talk about that hardship and the marginalization from your perspective. And I, I laugh because... Now that I'm older, I also see that for myself, right? You know, because I now have empathy for what you were going through. Because I always saw as you as a the boss, right? <laughs> you know, of the place. Uh, and at a time, I wasn't seeing you as a founder who was like going through the tough times in terms of cash flow and mm. 
you know, getting a voice burn and getting out. your foot into yeah. the door and burnout as well. Yeah. And I think secondly, of course, I concur with you. I think there's a huge amount of like, at that time, yeah, nobody was fans of the word entrepreneur, founder. So it was a very weird thing to be doing at that time. And I still remember like hanging out with Song, who continues to be a great friend of mine till today and mm-hmm. at Grain. And, you know, he was building Tencent movement and a bunch of different things, design. Mm-hmm. And then one day he was like, hey, Jeremy, I want to do this thing called Fit for You All. Can you like evaluate these different glass mason jars? And then I was like saying, okay, this mason jar is too hipster. This one is more like, you know, not hipster enough. You know, this is just right. And also, I think it was a, a beautiful amount of serendipity, right? You know, that, that happened yeah. in that group, right? It was like that cluster where, you know, we're all cre- busy doing our own stuff, but we could collide with each other and do something amazing. Yeah. And one of our first members, Rebecca, she told me once and she summed it up so nicely because people were asking her what made the hub so magical at that time. And we were trying to recreate it at scale, right? And she said that in that space, everyone had each other's backs. We wanted each other to succeed, even without saying so. And that was the magic. You know, you come in, you know that people are there to help you. Yeah. And I don't know where else in Singapore people feel like that anymore today. Yeah, I think there's a truth there, right? Because I think... At the end of the day, you know, what the Impact Hub Singapore brought was you, right? And the team that you brought that had that sense of mission. And I think that cascaded to the rest of the whole community where all of us saw ourselves as impact creators at a key level and kind of like looked at it as a co-working space, honestly, second to the community that we were getting and the connections we got to make Mm -hmm. and help each other along the way. So, you know, things have changed since then because, you know, one just thing that we've seen is that entrepreneurship has, to some extent, stopped being marginalized. And it's, I think, a little bit more mainstream. Maybe in some areas, it may even be cool, right? You know. So, how do you feel about that transition? Because you've been part of that transition because you've been out there advocating, talking about failure. You've been there advocating about entrepreneurship. You've been there talking about mission and impact as well. And I've heard you speak multiple times on that in a very compelling way. So I think to some extent, you know, the fruit of your work and other people like you is kind of starting to bear fruit. What do you think about that trend? Well, right now, definitely the the ecosystem has expanded in magnitudes that you can't really name everybody now in the ecosystem. In the past, we used to know everybody. I personally, I think that's great. I think this providing a new playbook for young people to become, to stand for themselves and to create something that they want to build in the world, that's always good. And we always need more of that. I think where it can be better is always to insert the reflective piece, right? Back to the ecosystem. What are we building this for, right? Why are we doing this? Why are we taking personal, professional, financial risk at the end of the day? What will all these achieve? I feel that now, you know, it's it's a game of the next round of funding, the, the valuation of the next round. VCs um, incentivize to balloon up each round. <laughs> You're a VC too, sorry. <laughs> but I am too, right? But so I know I know the rules of the game, the good and the bad. And it starts from there. And the name of the game is such. And sometimes round after round, there are substantial number of companies that are truly creating value. But there are also others that are just shifting value around. 
And that is not so great because not, not only does it distract or sort of, you know, channel capital, but more importantly, talents away from more more deserving companies and founders and causes. So I would just say that I think what we have going on in Southeast Asia in general is great. What is it, 14, 16 unicorns now? How many jobs created? But I would go back to, you know, Gojek's original purpose. It was a social enterprise in the beginning. Grab's original purpose. It was to make transportation safe for women in Malaysia. All these original purposes. Can it find a place? in the world of elevated valuations and venture capital funding and specs and all that. Well, you hit the nail on the head a little bit because both you and I have done that transition, right? We started out as social entrepreneurs and we've both been more classic founders as well. Classic founders. You mean founders who prioritize cash flow and profitability? <laughs> <laughs> It's called the brutal reality of a P&L statement, right? But also choosing to build a second one or third one in a different way. Just, mm-hmm. you know, at least for me, compare and see what the difference is as well. But, you know, we've seen actually quite a few folks do that same transition, right? There's a lot of folks from the Impact Hub Singapore that started out as social entrepreneurs and now they're in venture capital, running a classic tech back startup. So what do you think about that? I'm just kind of curious, why do you think we are doing that shift, right, you know, between all, all those three things, right, the social entrepreneur side, the VC-backed entrepreneur, and the VC, we've been like changing hats or shifting roles or exploring yeah. different aspects of it. So I'm kind of curious why that fluidity, right? Yeah, 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 I, I hear you. I think you and I as well, right, like my first six years were in impact and then the last four were in tech and VC and now I'm coming back to impact with everything learned. You know, I think if we are truly talking about moving the needle in the world, right, for whatever cost that you care for and you want to, or whatever technology that you want to put out there, it does require system thinking, right? And systems thinking require you to be proficient, not no need to be professional, but proficient in several domains. So I think people coming from one background, dipping their toes in another background, learning the rules, learning the network, learning the, the actors in those in the ecosystem, having the third domain, having the fourth domain, coming back, merging it, combining it in different ways. I think it's not a bad thing. I think the risk there is that the, the, the more impact mission folks entering the, the VC and, and tech world and also sort of like just be completely disillusionized by it, for, for example, right? I think that's a different story. You know, I think we shouldn't lose the intent of why we're there and and come back to it with it, you know? So, yeah, I think, I think our lives, if we live by um, statistical standards, I think we have the opportunity to maybe have eight, nine different careers. You know, if every trajectory takes seven years, right? Then you have like 50 over years of productive life. And in that, we can experiment in different things, you know, Jeremy, like what you're doing as well. And, but at the end, I think we mustn't lose sight about what really makes us sparkle. Yeah, that's amazing. I love the idea of a sparkle. And, you know, I think the vc back startup that I built was in the early education. And the reason why I did that was because I felt like it could bring that sparkle, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, still had a mission of bringing education for young kids while also letting new moms be able to return to work, right? Without worrying about their childcare arrangements as well as 
giving and creating better living conditions and wages for childcare workers. And so I think that was what I was thinking about. And that's how I was marrying that with venture capital as well. Um, that was looking for that you know, financial return. And it was not easy mm-hmm. and it was worthwhile in that sense. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't done that, you know, I think maybe you wouldn't have enough content and enough sort of data points within you to to be at Monk's Hill now and doing what you're doing. Yeah, definitely true. And I think what I like about Monk's Hill personally is because out of all the VCs, I felt like they had the right, I think mission, I think mission is a big word, but I think, you know, that heart for what they want to do is transform like millions of lives across Southeast Asia. And that's their mission statement, which sounds, if you think about it, like, Every nonprofit, right? But no, also, but Ping is very purpose-driven. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the second part. It's like the actual people, the behaviors, the actual yeah. way of being present in a room is actually a huge part of it. And so, you know, I'd love to kind of like ask second last question here is really talk about when you see all of this change and everything, what advice would you give to someone who is thinking about, okay, I've been a social entrepreneur and should I do a corporate career first and then I should do like a social entrepreneur, like the phasing, the timing. What advice would you give them in terms of thinking through how to sequence or prepare themselves for the tough times that we talked about, right? Getting your parents to sell cakes, uh, help you sell cakes and stuff like that. Hmm. How would you think about that? You know, as we know, there is no one prescribed uh, recipe for the sequencing of things. I just think that you have to weigh between the value that you can truly create and therefore appropriate, like obtain back in whatever thing that you want to start or do versus the risk and the trade-off of it. If I think that the hub would fail, for example, I wouldn't have built it after seven, nine months, but I used that time to calculate my risk, right? And still at the same time, I needed to test the my marketability in the in the job market too, right? Like applying for jobs, getting and then rejecting and things like that. So I think it really depends on what what you're bringing to the table. Is it novel enough? Is there a white space that you can create value in? Is the market big enough? Do you have the necessary networks or components to get the right financing in, the right talent in for that vision to materialize, right? If you think that you have like 60% chance of getting there, then do it. You know, it doesn't have to be 90, 100% unless you start doing it. So yeah, 60% would be my own benchmark. And if not, right, it's always good. It's always fine to learn from others first because I think the benefit of joining the industry or joining being part of a company, if you are smart and if you're still in tune with your, your actual intent, you will find problems. You will, you will know intimately the challenges of that particular industry. That's why if you look at, say, insurtech or fintech today, right, that's getting so much of uh, VC funding, a lot of the founders are from the industry themselves, right? Ex-Alliance, ex, ex-Aeon, ex, you know, whatever bank. And, and they, they saw the cracks. They have enough capital, enough network to make the change. And then they come out to do it. And also research shows that the average age for the most successful founder was 42. So what happens before 22 to 42? Learning on someone else's money. Yeah, or or (laughs) that, you know, trying trying different things. Yeah. 
last quick question is obviously you've had some good times, you had tough times, you were hinting at some of them along the way. Could you share about a time when you had a tough time and you had to choose to be brave? Yeah, for sure. I think when WeWork entered Singapore in December 2017, we knew that they would be changing the market dynamics of demand, supply, pricing. And so 2018 was very much a year of consolidation. And true enough, we were approached by at least three companies that were going to fight WeWork and uh, they made acquisition offers. I think we had two uh, term sheets. And I entertained them. One was in China. And I really learned the whole M&A game there and, and really explored that. They would have made me very, very comfortable financially. And it would have been a nice exit. I think, however, I ended up rejecting that. And that took a lot of courage. And my friends were like, what? Because mainly because I knew that I needed to work for, because there was a lock-in period, right? With a lot of these equity hires and acquisitions. I knew that I, I, I very much would not be able to survive uh, without uh, a purpose-led company leader, you know. For them, the purpose was profit full stop. They made it very clear to me. <laughs> and credit goes to them. But no, I, I wouldn't have survived that. Wow, Grace. I respect that decision a lot because uh, that's a tough one to walk away from. And mm. I'm not sure if I would have been measured up to you in that decision. No, but but you see, at the end, it ended up okay too. I still had an exit. I still could hold on to my values. I still could build the, the stuff that I want to. And now I'm free to, to do my next thing, you know, for the next 10 years. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow, thank you so much, Grace. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming to the show. And obviously, I want to kind of like, as usual, paraphrase like the three biggest themes that I saw from the podcast. The first is thank you so much for sharing about your entrepreneurial childhood and your professional journey. It was an absolute blast hearing about you being a love doctor as well as charging your relatives for all the activities and how you started out as an entrepreneur back then. But also I think a lot of the lucky breaks in that sense, but also the opportunities you took to work hard and leverage to get there. You know, the scholarship wasn't just you being lucky and you being chosen, but also you taking the bravery to write it in and to uh, actually even apply and raise your hand, right? And that's something that's amazing and really inspiring. And I hope my daughter also learns uh, one day, uh, you know, oh, you'll be, a, yeah, I think I'll show her this podcast to be a good role model for her. Oh, thank you. The second thing, of course, thank you so much for sharing your like the window into that special moment that we had, that bubble of time of memories at the Impact Hub Singapore of the Red Bus outside at the National Youth Council building. And I think it was just interesting and I'd love to go deep into one day how that small environment of, like you said, marginalized rejects who didn't <laughs> dare call ourselves founders <laughs> ended up founding a lot of really great, you know, names that everybody knows today, right, within the technology world. And it's just interesting to see how we've gotten from point A to point B in terms of getting it mainstream, but also talking a little bit more about, you know, how it's starting to shift till today and how to be aware of that. You know, the third thing I really appreciate is, and, you know, we covered this at a high level throughout the entire thing, is I think you're quite consistent in really talking about the... At one level, it's like, you know, bringing the best of both worlds, right? You know, I think the sense of mission, but also the rigor and thoughtfulness of like classic lean startup or VC-backed principles. Like, and you started talking about product market fit uh, in terms of the resource networks. And also you started talking a lot about founder market fit, right? About whether you have the sparkle for the problem that you're tackling. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I really appreciate you kind of capstoning that experience by sharing about, like you said, why you founded Impact Hub Singapore, because it fit your sparkle, and also why you made certain decisions about the trajectory of the whole network because of what you would mean to stay true to your sparkle. So I really thank you for sharing this with everybody. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.